Let's open God's Word this evening to the book of Judges. Let's read first of all from Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 23, as it provides a sort of overview of the book of Judges and the cycle that we see time and time again. Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. And the, children of e- and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and He delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. And He sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge, and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass, when the judge was dead, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and He said, Because that this people hath transgressed My covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto My voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died, that through them I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered He them into the hand of Joshua. Now let's turn to Judges chapter 13 where we will read the first seven verses. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive, and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the children, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. 
and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came unto me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God, very terrible. But I asked him not whence he was, neither told he me his name. But he said unto me, Behold, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and now drink no wine, nor strong drink, neither eat any unclean thing. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Thus far we read God's Word. The text for this evening's sermon is the first three verses of chapter 13, as well as the end of chapter 5. Or excuse me, the end of verse 5. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. And now the end of verse 5, And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Beloved congregation, this evening we begin a new series of sermons on the life of Samson. And in choosing to preach a series on the life of Samson, I very deliberately have chosen some history that's contained in the Old Testament historical books. For you see, the Bible can be neatly divided into six main genres. First, there is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Second, there is Old Testament history, that is, those books running from Joshua through Esther. Third, the wisdom literature. Fourth, the prophets. Fifth, New Testament history, including the Gospels as well as Acts. And sixth, the various epistles that are found in the New Testament. In my ministry here, I have preached on five of those six different genres. My first series was on the Pentateuch in that we went over the history of God's church in the wilderness. We covered wisdom literature when we had a series on Proverbs for parenting. We had a series on the prophet Habakkuk. We followed Jesus with Simon Peter, thereby covering the New Testament history. And most recently, we had a series going through the entire book of Ephesians. That means there's one genre that I have not preached an entire series through the Old Testament historical books. And for that reason, we choose a history within that section. But why Samson? Of all of the different aspects of that history, why this particular figure? Well, there are especially two reasons Two things that make Samson unique and therefore interesting. First, because of the rich typology that's found in this history, much of which we might miss upon first glance. For you see, Samson is indeed a type of Jesus Christ. That is, a shadowy Old Testament revelation pointing us ahead to Christ and His saving work. And there are certain aspects of the life of, science, of the life of Samson in which we can 
readily see that. We see that here in the announcement of His birth. We see that it is death and that salvation was accomplished through His death. But there are other parts of this history where the typology is not so obvious. What about when He burns the fields of the Philistines using foxes? What about when He picks up the gates of Gaza and carries them to the top of a hill? We might miss Christ in those passages. And therefore, to bring out the rich typology of this section of the Old Testament, decided it's worth having a series of sermons on it. But it's not just the rich typology. The second reason is because Samson gives us a unique opportunity to learn about ourselves. Especially because Scripture has so much to tell us about his sinfulness and his flaws. Now, Samson certainly is a child of God. He's a believer. That's plain from the fact that he's mentioned among the heroes of faith recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. But of all of the figures, the biblical figures that we see, is there any other figure that we are told more about their sin? About their shortcomings? They're on full display with Samson. And even with his heroic deeds, his mighty feet, his mighty acts of victory, even those on the surface appear so self-willed, so foolhardy, and just pure acts of strength. And what can happen is that when we study Samson, because we see his flaws on the foreground, we can be tempted to look at Samson and to think, what's wrong with you? How could you be so blind? How could you be so foolish? But the key is to recognize that's us. The key is to see that we can be just as blind, just as foolish, if not more so. By studying the history of Samson, we learn about ourselves. And so tonight we begin a new series of sermons studying this history and we will use as our theme for the series the mighty yet flawed deliverer of Israel. The mighty yet flawed deliverer of Israel. And I believe that theme captures the various elements of this history. Samson was indeed a deliverer. He brought salvation to the people of Israel. And he did so through his great might, his spirit-given power that we see on display in these heroic deeds. But yet he's flawed. He falls short. And in looking at this history, my intention is to preach roughly four sermons per chapter. The life of Samson is covered in Judges 13 through 16. And so this series will have roughly 16 sermons, maybe a few more. And tonight, following Scripture, we start with the announcement of his birth. So tonight we consider 
Judges 13, verses 1 through 3, using as our theme the promise of a deliverer to Manoah's barren wife. The promise of a deliverer to Manoah's barren wife. First, we'll look at a barren woman. Second, we will look at a promised son. And then third, a faithful God. A barren woman, a promised son, a faithful God. At the outset of this history, we are introduced to a married couple. That's verse 2. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And it's evident that he had a wife. And by itself, this note is an important reminder to us that we are talking about real history. And that these are real people who are a part of this narrative so that this is not just some myth. This is not just some fairy tale. These are not just some make-believe characters. But these are real people. And more specifically, these are God's people who lived through this history so that one day when we get to heaven and we meet Manoah and his wife, we will be able to ask them, what was it like to live through that history? Tell us, Manoah, about your experience. And if we were to pose that question to them, no doubt the first thing they would tell us is that they lived during a particularly low point in the history of Israel. And it was a low point for two main reasons. First, because of the great sinfulness of the nation of Israel. That's evident from the beginning of verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. They were walking impenitently in some sin. And specifically, they were walking in the sin of idolatry. The language here in verse 1 points us to some particular sin because in the original, it reads this way, and the children of Israel did the evil again in the sight of the Lord. Which raises the question, which evil is in view here? And the evil is idolatry. That's the sin that we find mentioned again and again and again. We saw that in Judges chapter 2, which we read. Two different references there to them worshiping idol gods. But more specifically, we know this is the sin that's in view. In light of the broader context, if we back up to chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Judges 10, verses 6 and 7, we read this, "...and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord." and served Balaam and Ashtoreth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab, the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served not Him. So there's idolatry in view. But now notice verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon. So on account of their idolatry, God gives them over to two different nations. You add the Ammonites to the east and the Philistines to the west. And this is relevant because we'll see in a moment that in Judges chapter 13, the enemy that's in view are the Philistines. And this is hearkening back to chapter 10 because understand the intervening history running from Judges 10, verse 8 through the end of chapter 12, is the record of how God would deliver 
his people from the Ammonites to the east. But when we come to chapter 13, verse 1, there's very little told, we are told very little about the specifics of their sin because it was already introduced back in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. And now we're simply being reminded, ah, yes, he put them into the hands of both the Ammonites and the Philistines, and now we're going to see how God would deliver them out of the hands of the Philistines. But all of that is to say that the specific sin in view here is the sin of idolatry. And they've progressed in this sin. They've gotten worse. Judges 13 points us in that direction because it reads the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And that word again has the idea of they've now added to their sin. They've increased their sin. They've enhanced their sin. And they've done that because now they're worshiping all the different gods of all the nations around them. Not just one Balaam, but as chapter 10, verse 6 tells us, Balaam, Astroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the children of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Their wickedness is only increasing. And this was indeed a great evil. That's the word that's used in chapter 13. The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the sin was such great evil because this was unfaithfulness to their covenant God. And we must see this sin in terms in light of the covenant. Because notice how God's people are introduced here. And the children of Israel did evil. This is God's covenant nation. This is His covenant people. And we're told that they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. In the sight of Jehovah, their covenant God, right before His eyes. In the very land that He said He would dwell with them in. So that their sin is apostasy. This is a a falling away from the one true living God. This was evil. And you wonder what it was like for Manoah and his wife to see all of this. Manoah, did you lament the sinfulness of the people, their backsliding? Did it break your heart to see God's covenant people Walking so boldly in such obvious sin. Or Manoah, were you yourself caught up in this? Maybe not as boldly, but was this a period of backsliding for you too? Whether or not Manoah and his wife were sinning in this way, we do not know. But either way, they did experience the consequences for this sin. And no doubt they would point to that as the second reason why this was a particularly low point in the history of the nation of Israel. First, because of the great sinfulness. And second, because of God's chastisement upon the nation of Israel. 
For God gave them into the hand of the Philistines. That's the second half of verse 13. The Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. They became subject to the Philistines. The Philistines were allowed to spoil them. They were under their dominion so that this time was a period of oppression for God's people. And it lasted a long time. We're told that He gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And that's noteworthy because in the book of Judges, this is the longest period of time during which Israel was subject to some foreign power. In fact, it's twice as long as the next longest period of time, which was 20 years into the hands of a different enemy. So that this period of oppression of being in the hands of the Philistines, under the hands of the Philistines, would stretch from before Samson was born. We can say that because of verse 5, the end. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Indicating they're already in the hand of the Philistines before he's even born. And it will stretch all the way until the days of Samuel. And the history recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 7 in which Israel will finally have a great victory over the Philistines, so that in 1 Samuel 7, we can finally read, so the Philistines were subdued and they came no more into the coast of Israel. But until then, they would be subject to the Philistines. And this is a part of what made this such a low point in the history of Israel. And now when I speak of this low point, I have in view especially this cycle that repeats itself again and again in the book of Judges that's outlined for us in Judges chapter 2. In the book of Judges, we see that when they have a godly leader, a godly judge, God's people serve and worship Jehovah as they ought to, and there's a time of peace. There's a time of rest. But then from there, they'll fall into some great sin. The sin of idolatry. And on account of that sin, God will chasten them by bringing, giving them over into the hands of some enemy to chasten them so that there's these different points along a circle. And it will continue because God's people will cry out for deliverance. That'll start the, the upward trajectory around this circle. They'll repent and ask God to help them and then God will raise up a judge to deliver them. And so long as that judge is alive and leading God's people, they worship Him and then there's rest and peace, but then they'll fall into sin again. God will hand them over into the hands of their enemies, leading them to cry out once again. He'll give them a judge and then the cycle will repeat again and again and again. But with Judges 13, verse 1, we're put on notice. We are at the lowest point. And because... Israel has only progressed in their sinfulness. And because this is a 40-year period of oppression, we recognize this is the lowest point in the history of the book of Judges. And Manoah and his wife experienced this. We can be confident that they felt the effects because of where they lived. Verse 2 tells us, and there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites. And that's 
important information because if we opened our Bibles to the back and we found one of our maps that gives us the layout of where the different tribes had settled, we'd see very quickly that the tribe of Dan was located just to the north of that region where the Philistines lived. So that the Danites bordered upon the land of the enemies. And as for the town of Zorah, it might not be found on your map, but if you search for it more deeply, you would find it's on the southern end. The southern edge of the tribe of Dan. So that this is a a town in the closest proximity to the enemy. Which means surely, Manoah and his wife knew what it was to live under the oppression of the Philistines. They could tell us what it was like. They could tell us whether this entailed the the stealing of crops come fall, the requirement of forced labor, or whatever it entailed. They could relate to us the story and how it was a great grief for them to live under this oppression. But that was not the only source of their grief. Aside from the two reasons that made this a particularly low point in the history of the nation of Israel, we can now focus more on Manoah and his wife and see there was an additional source of grief, namely, his wife was barren. Verse 2, And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose wife whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and bare not. And the text is really emphasizing this point. Notice the repetition there that his wife was barren and bare not. She was infertile and therefore did not beget any children. And not only are we told this in verse 2, it's repeated to us again in verse 3, when the angel of the Lord will come, he will point this out and start by saying, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not. And it's in light of this that we understand that for Manoah's wife, it was not possible for her to become pregnant and to carry a child full term. So that the idea is not simply, well, They haven't yet had children. Nor is the idea even that, well, she's been pregnant a couple times, but simply has not carried the child to full term. But it's telling us she was not even capable of conceiving and becoming pregnant. And thus she knew the grief that comes for such women once a month when their cycle starts again. This woman knew the inner turmoil when loved ones would announce they're expecting. Wanting to be happy for them, but yet feeling empty inside and wishing, longing that she could say the same thing. She knew that grief. And it is, indeed, grief. That's the message of Scripture. Scripture consistently portrays 
barrenness, infertility as a heavy burden upon the women who experience it and therefore for the women of the congregation who know this grief. Understand that the message of Scripture to you is not... It's not that big of a deal. Why are you so troubled? But that's not the message of Scripture. Scripture makes very clear it is a big deal. And that means God Himself is telling us, I recognize the pain. I recognize the hardship. And you may be sure, women of the congregation, that the heart of your Savior is so full of compassion for you in this difficulty. And you may also be sure that our God has a loving purpose in withholding children altogether or withholding more children from the ones you already have. Because He had a purpose for Manoah's wife. A purpose that was probably one of many and no doubt there was overlap between God's purposes for Manoah's wife and God's purposes for the women of the congregation. But yet there was a purpose that was unique to Manoah's wife that is not shared among the women of this church. But one that was shared with all of the other women who were barren in the Old Testament. Manoah's wife is not alone in this difficulty. There were others. Abram's wife, Sarai. Isaac's wife, Rebekah. Jacob's wife, Rachel. So that each of the three patriarchs had a wife that could not conceive. At least not at first. There was Hannah, the wife of Elkanah. And there's Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah. So that when we step back and we look at the Old Testament as, as Scripture as a whole, we see this common theme. We see a long string of different women who suffered from infertility, from barrenness. And that raises the question, why? What is going on here? And the answer is that God had a purpose. And the answer, the purpose, was to make plain Man's inability to produce, to bring forth the promised Messiah. Because we have to see this barrenness in light of the mother promise. In which promise, God promised a deliverer who would be born as the seed of the woman. And from that promise forward, The women who are a part of God's covenant have this expectation, this hope that one day a child will be born, will come forth from the mother's womb who will then be used to save, to deliver God's people. And it's when we have that promise in view and that corresponding expectation that we recognize that it's not just coincidence that we read about all these different women who struggled with barrenness but there's something going on here. Scripture's trying to tell us something. And the message embedded into this is that the promised Savior would not come by the will or power of man, 
What these passages are teaching us is man's inability to produce, to set forth one who can save us from our sins. And therefore, this would be God's work. The only way this promised seed of the woman comes forth is if God Himself intervenes, if God Himself performs a miracle. And that's a lesson for us regarding our own inability to save ourselves. And that's what we need to see. Verse 1 is reminding us of our sinfulness. The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. And we need to recognize we're no different. We too have committed evil against our God, and we too, on account of our sin, deserve to be delivered over into bondage, into slavery. And we were fallen in Adam and subject to sin. And verse 2 then is reminding us we have no way of getting ourselves out of that predicament. We are not able to save ourselves, nor are we able to produce, to bring forth someone who can save us. That's what we learn in this history. Even as we learn that same lesson, every time we examine ourselves with a view to partaking of the Lord's Supper, This is a preparatory worship service. This coming week, we will examine ourselves with a view to partaking of the Lord's Supper. That is, we will analyze our lives in the light of God's Word. And understand, the purpose of this week is not that I have to be extra good this week so that I can come and sit down at this table. Because if that's our thinking, that I have to be extra good and then I can come, well, that betrays that we're still thinking from a legalistic point of view, from a works righteousness point of view. That we're trying to earn a spot at the table. That's not the purpose of this week. But the purpose of this week is to see our sins and thus our need for Christ to be reminded, I cannot save myself. I need another. So that through the process of self-examination, we come to see our own spiritual barrenness. And now here, think not so much the barrenness of a woman, but the barrenness of a tree. A tree that does not produce any sort of fruit. On account of which, we might deliver ourselves from sin and the consequences of sin. It's through the process of self-examination that we hear God say to us, Thou art barren and bearest not. You are a sinner. That's your condition. And you do not bring forth anything in and of yourselves that would make you acceptable to God. Not your faith. Not your repentance. Not your good works. None of it can deliver you from your sin and the consequences of it. That's the purpose of self-examination. So that we're brought to our knees and are reminded, I need Christ. There's salvation in Him alone. 
That's where both self-examination and this history point us. That is, they point us to the Savior that God Himself provides. That God Himself promised so long ago. Even as He promised a son to Manoah's barren wife. There is a promise of a son here. We see that in verse 3. Verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Here we have the angel of the Lord appearing unto Manoah's wife. And when we study this figure, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it becomes very clear that this angel is God Himself. And that will become evident later in this chapter. The angel will appear a second time and then he will miraculously ascend into the fires off the altar. And after seeing that, Manoah will cry out as he does in verse 21 and verse 22. But the angel of the Lord did no more appear to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. That is, he came to understand that this angel was the angel of the Lord. Not just an angel sent by God on God's behalf, but the angel who is God. And more particularly, more specifically, this is the Son of God, the, the second person of the Trinity. Because within the Trinity, each of the three persons has his own distinct personal properties and it's in harmony with the distinct personal properties of the Son that He would be the one to be sent. That He would be the one to come to His people in this way. Even as He would be the one to come in the fullness of time. When He would take to Himself a a true human nature. When He would be born of a woman and become really a man. Here, He's simply appearing in the form of a man. In the fullness of time, he actually clothes himself in our humanity. He assumes to himself a, he becomes partaker of our flesh and blood. This is the pre incarnate Christ that we see here. And true to his character, he shows up in the hour of greatest need. In his love and in his care for his church, he comes to help. Specifically, he makes a promise to provide a deliverer. That's what he's communicating in the second half of verse 3. He said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren, and bearest not. Thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now first of all, he reminds her of her need. Thou art barren, and bearest not. And understand, he's not pouring salt into an open wound. He's not being pastorally insensitive. But he's awaking within Manoah's wife a sense of her need so that she, she recognizes that she requires help. And it's only then that he makes the promise that he does. But thou shalt conceive and bear a son. He promises a son. Must have been quite something for Manoah's wife to hear those words. 
conceive, bear, son. Because prior to this, those words were only, were only the occasion for pain and for grief. But now they're being spoken to her, not just in the form of wishful thinking, but in the form of a promise from one that she recognizes is sent from God. But this is not just any son. More specifically, this son would be a deliverer. That's the end of verse 5. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. This son is going to be used to throw off the yoke of the Philistines. He's going to be used to deliver them from the tyranny, from the oppression of the enemy. And this was God's own appointed work for this son before he was ever born, before he ever showed up. God had this work set aside for him that he would liberate his people from the hand of their enemy. And what good news this was for Manoah's wife. She would finally have the blessed privilege of bringing forth a child and holding that child close to her. But the news was not just for Manoah's wife, it was for all of God's people, for Israel. God Himself is about to provide a deliverer, a Savior, to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. Good news. But yet even that good news pales in comparison to the far greater news that would come much later. The far greater news that would likewise be spoken to a woman whose name we do know. Her name was Mary. And that's where this history points us. This history is full of types. Shadowy revelations pointing us ahead to the saving work of Jesus Christ. That is, real people, real events that are found in the Old Testament that direct our spiritual gaze to our Savior Jesus Christ. And the typology that we see in this particular passage is the typology pointing us ahead to the promised birth of Jesus Christ. Notice the parallels, congregation. For then too, the Word of God came at a particularly low point in the history of Israel. In fact, the lowest point in the entire Old Testament. That 400 years of darkness during which there was no direct word from our God. During which there was great sin and apostasy and the consequences for that sin and apostasy. During that low point, God sent a messenger to a woman. Not to Joseph, first of all. Not to Joseph and Mary together, first of all. But first to Mary, even as here in this history, the message does not come to Manoah and his wife. It does not come to Manoah himself. But first, before it's later confirmed, first it comes to the woman. And in both cases, it's to a woman 
for whom it was humanly impossible to have a child. This woman's barrenness, her inability to conceive and to bring forth a child, points us to Mary. And the fact that she was a virgin, that is, from a human point of view at that time in her life, it was impossible for her to conceive, for her to bring forth a child. She had not yet known a man. But yet the promise came. A promise that sounds so familiar. The promise of not just any son, but a deliverer. So that there's the promise of Matthew 1, verse 21. And now admittedly, this is spoken to Joseph, but nevertheless, the wording of it is so clearly found hearkening back to this shadowy type in Samson. Matthew 1, verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Even as in verse 5, we read, And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So that this history in the book of Judges is pointing us ahead to God's own miraculous provision of a child whose appointed work would be to save His people so that before He was ever born, before He ever showed up on the scene, God had determined to use this man, the Son of God in human flesh, to save His people from their sins. God Himself promised to provide a deliverer. And He did so in such a way, making clear it would be entirely His work of grace. That this child would not be produced by the will or power of man, but by God's own will and God's own power. But now for all of the parallels, there is one clear difference. And that difference is found not so much in the announcement itself, but in the deliverance that would be provided. For you see, Jesus Christ is a complete deliverer unlike Samson. Notice the wording of verse 5. And He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Oh yes, He will deliver. He will be sent as a Savior and He will accomplish mighty victories on behalf of God and His people. But He will only begin it. He'll get the work started. But it's not going to be completed during His life. And that does come out in the subsequent history. When Samson dies... Israel is still under the oppression of the Philistines. And the work will not be completed until the days of Samuel and 1 Samuel chapter 7, which we already referenced earlier. So without taking away from the important work of Samson, nevertheless, Scripture itself points us to the fact that he was an incomplete deliverer. But the same thing cannot be said of our Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the complete Deliverer. Did not we see that this morning? 
that he's not only the author of our faith, faith, that he not only gets it started, but he's the finisher of it. And that's the, the testimony elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Hebrews 7, verse 25, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost. That is, he's able to save completely all the way. He's a complete Savior. And that he's not only delivered us from the debt that we owe, the punishment that we deserve by his perfect satisfaction, but he's also earned for us eternal life by his perfect obedience. He not only delivers us from the the guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin. He not only accomplished salvation for us by His life and death, He also worked salvation in us by the power of His Spirit. So that this Savior Jesus Christ is not a Savior who simply begins, who gets it started, and then says, well, you take over now. It's up to you to finish it. But from beginning to end, from first to last, Christ saves us to the uttermost. And that's good news, church of God. This is worth rejoicing over. That the message of God's Word to us is not that there's still something that you have to do, that you have to perform if you want to make it to heaven. But the message of Scripture is that we have a complete Savior in whom there is a full deliverance. Let us rejoice in the Savior that God Himself has provided for us who has saved us to the uttermost. And at the same time, let us also rejoice in the faithfulness of our God. Because God's faithfulness does indeed come out in this history. This history highlights, puts on full display His steadfast covenantal love for us, His people. Particularly in the fact that He provides a deliverer in spite of the fact that Israel did not neither deserved this deliverer nor evidently even desired this deliverer. Certainly, they did not deserve this deliverer. That's obvious on the surface. They've committed evil again and they're getting worse and this is sin against their covenantal God. They're only giving Him reasons to cast them aside to say, I'm done with you. They do not deserve a deliverer. But it's not just that they don't deserve it. It's that evidently they did not even desire this deliverer. And that will become plain later in the history when Samson is going about his work as judge to rescue them from the hands of the Philistines and the people of Judah are appalled at what Samson's doing. What are you doing? Don't you know the Philistines are lords over us? Why have you done this thing? They did not want him. But even here already, there's indication that they did not yet desire a deliverer. Because they never even asked for it. 
Did you notice when we read this history and as we've gone through it that there is no cry for help between verses 1 and 2? And that's significant because of that cycle that we see again and again. And it's so consistent time after time. There's a godly leader. They serve God. There's a time of peace and rest. And then Israel sins. After their sin, God gives them over into the hands of the enemy. And then the next step is they cry out to God seeking deliverance. They cry out in repentance. And then He gives them a judge. But that one step is missing here. There's absolutely no indication in the passage that they're even asking for relief or even, or that they are filled with a true repentance over their sin and a longing that God would deliver them. So that at this point in their history, they are so hardened in their sin and so accustomed to their bondage and oppression that they do not yet cry out. They do not even have a desire to be delivered. But God provides one anyway. And that's astounding when you stop to think about it. Though there is no cry for help, God Himself will send help well before He ever brings His people to the point that they do indeed cry out for help. And that's important from a theological point of view. It teaches us about our repentance. Repentance is important. Repentance is necessary. But repentance is not a condition that I must fulfill in order to be right with my God. It's not as though Being right with God depends on me sort of earning my way back into His favor by my repentance. And this history makes that clear. Because God provides a deliverer before His people ever repent. So that as one commentator put it, it's as though with His left hand, He is disciplining, He's chastening His children. While at the same time with His right hand, He's making provision for a deliverer to rescue His people. And that shows us the faithfulness of our God to us. To us who likewise often go astray. The cycle in the book of Judges is not just the cycle of the nation of Israel, but it's the cycle that repeats itself again and again in our own lives. Where we fall into some sin, we become ensnared, and God in His faithfulness disciplines us so that, so as to bring us to the point that we cry out in repentance to Him, and then He delivers us out of the snare. And then it repeats itself. But understand that we are not deserving of that continued deliverance. We're not worthy that God should rescue us again and again from the snares that we so readily leap into. We are not worthy in ourselves that He should forgive us of our sins time and time again. And sadly, there are even times that we do not even bother crying out. 
There are times where we hold on to that sin. We refuse to repent. We know it's wrong. But we will not seek His face. Praise be to God for His faithfulness in delivering us time and time again. So that though we do not deserve it and though we do not always even desire it, He still delivers us and He delivers us by working in us that repentance. He gives us our repentance. He works in us powerfully by His Spirit so that we are sorry for our sins so that we do cry out and seek forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. He is a faithful God. Let us thank and praise Him for His great faithfulness. And knowing His faithfulness to us, out of gratitude, let us seek to be faithful to Him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word and for the continual reminder of our need for Jesus Christ. Direct our faith ever to Him. And be pleased, O Lord, to rescue us when we become ensnared in some sin. Work in us repentance so that we cry out unto Thee seeking Thy face. And we pray that Thou wilt forgive us again and again and work in us by Thy Spirit so that we might evermore, so that we might be more and more faithful unto Thee, our God. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.